As we begin this morning looking at the scriptures, please turn in your Bibles to Leviticus chapter uh, 23. Leviticus chapter 23. And that's where we'll be. If you're using the Pew Bible, it's page 101. So I'll save you some time. 101. We're moving through and kind of semi-taking this um, verse by verse. And our theme being... um, centered with the idea that what is happening in Leviticus 23 and in Exodus 26 and Deuteronomy 26 and uh, throughout the uh, book of Numbers is that God is shaping his people to be a particular kind of people. And he's shaping them so that he can be the center of their lives. And part of what that means is that, they, that he must also be the center of their calendar year. Um, And so what we have in Leviticus 23 is God breaking down these high holy days when everyone is to gather around the tabernacle and they're just going to feast together in the celebration of what God has done for them. Uh, Today we're going to talk about the Feast of First Fruits. Um, I know that Leviticus 23, as I said that, if you're new here and you're familiar with the Bible, it probably didn't get you jazzed up. Like, yes, Leviticus 23, I've been dying to talk about this. And that's because it seems so inapplicable to us. And I get that. Or it seems even maybe comical as you read it. I cannot help but think of the holy hand grenade of Antioch, um, if you're familiar with Monty Python. Uh, It just seems so foreign to us. And my hope is throughout this series, if at least one thing that we can accomplish is that you would begin to see how deep and rich and beautiful is the entirety of the Word of God. Even something as obscure as Leviticus 23. And so let's look at this text together. uh, Verses 9 through 14. Leviticus 23, verses 9 through 14. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf. And for those of you who don't, sheaf is like a a bundle of of wheat um, or barley or a bundle of, of that. The sheaf of your first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it, and on, that, and on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two tenths of an ephah, of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with pleasing aroma. Drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hin, and you shall eat neither bread nor grain, parched or fresh, until this same day, until you have brought the offering of your God. It is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. Great. <laughs> Wonderful. It's tricky because there are no instant hooks for us to grab onto. It's not like reading the parables of Jesus um, or reading something out of maybe Romans where it says do this or don't do that. You know, it, it seems very very obscure to us, but again, there is a lot that is going on here. And what we are required to do as people who have inherited the... T- think of like Paul, what did he say about Scripture? That, that it's, 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 it's profitable for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness, so that the man or woman of God may be equipped for every single good work. And when he is talking about Scripture, he isn't talking about his letter, he's talking about Leviticus. 
He's saying that this book right here is to train you and to equip you. And so if you are going to explore the depth of the word of God, then you are required to begin to think deeply, maturely about the word of God. Because I think there's a lot to be had here. Last week we asked the question of why did God institute holidays? Why did he legislate that they have days, uh, high festival and feast days? Today we are going to ask the question of why this festival? Why this feast day? Why does this matter? And how do we as Christians who have inherited the principle in the heart of the matter, but not necessarily the ritual, how do we apply this to our lives? So let's begin. First, I think what we see here is the foreshadowing of fulfillment. The foreshadowing of fulfillment. Notice here in the verse, uh, verse 10, it says, When you come into the land that I give you and you reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest and the lamb and the grain and, and the wine. When you come into the land. Now this commandment, this text was given to the Israelites years Years before they ever came into their inheritance. In fact, this was given to them first in Sinai in the book of Exodus. And and then it's repeated here in Leviticus and again in Numbers and again in Deuteronomy. So this is written like 40 years before they're ever going to set foot in the land. They've never even seen the Jordan River. They've just heard stories of how God came to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. And here Moses is again telling them. and, And though they've seen the hand of God move in Egypt, the future for them is really, really dark. It's going to be a whole generation before God fulfills this promise, let alone when they get into the land and, 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 and plow the land and seed the land and actually get a harvest to give to the Lord. And remember the, the spies in the book of Numbers, 12 of them go into the, to the land, and what do they see when they get there? And they come back and they say, man, the, the, the walls of their cities are huge. And, and the people there, I mean, they're, like, they're like, like Arnold. Like every single one of them is like a clone of Arnold. They're huge. And they're barbarians. And they're, I, we can't go against them. Their armies are vast. We can't, we can't defeat them. In fact, they say literally to the people, we are not able to go up against this people for they are stronger than we are. They face an uncertain future. They face years of wandering in the wilderness. They face all of this blackness, obscurity, What's going to come next? And yet God lays before them this promise. When you come into the land. And when you reap your first harvest. I think we can put our, our, our feet in their shoes for a moment. Because I think we experience that ourselves, don't we? You might know some of the promises of God. Jesus says at the end of the book of Matthew as he's sending people out into the world, sending sheep into the midst of wolves, he says in an earlier place. He says, and lo, I am with you always. Do you know? Even to the end of the age. You might remember where it says in Hebrews, I will never leave you. I will never forsake you. I know another promise from Hebrews. The Lord is my helper. What could man do to me? And the favorite verse of mine from Nahum, that uh, the Lord is good. He is a stronghold of, in the day of trouble. He knows those who put their trust in him. That is, a, God knows when you have put your whole self in his hands. And he's excited to hold on to it. He's excited to have it. He lays out these promises before you, and I know that many of you today are facing an uncertain future yourself. 
that illness, trouble with jobs, trouble with kids, trouble with marriage. The future is uncertain to us, but to God it's laid bare. Time itself has no meaning to the one that stands outside of it. To, to God, there is no uncertainty in that future. In God's love and providence, he says, I am with you, I will never forsake you. And we see this most palpably in Jesus. Do you remember Jesus in the garden? And he's kneeling and he's praying and he says, Lord, if it's possible, take this cup from me, but not my will, yours be done. As the shadow of the cross looms over Jesus, as he sees what is about to transpire, he has one plea to God, God, let's come up with a different solution. Let's come up with a different solution. And I don't think it's, we don't know for sure, but I don't think it's blasphemous to wonder if Jesus didn't have a little doubt because the future was dark to him in that moment. He didn't know for sure what would happen on the other side of the cross. He had abandoned a lot of his godhood right in that moment. And so the fear that must have been upon him, the pain that he knew that he would face, what is going to happen on the other side, and yet what is the fruit of Jesus' work? What is the fruit of planting his body in the ground? He becomes the first fruit of the dead. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 21, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. So it is in the first fruits of the harvest we see this typology, this this. this promise that something is going to happen, that God is going to provide. He is going to give this provision of life to the people. And here we see in Jesus the attribution of being the first fruit, that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of our hopes. Because what is the first fruit of the season, if not just this, that we want to live? And you need crops to live, right? We need food. We need, we need, they need the lambs. They need, they need all of the stuff that God is providing for them, just as we need Jesus. Thus, this holiday that we read of in Leviticus 23 is a type. It is a foreshadowing of what is to be completed and fulfilled in Jesus Christ. The thing that is to be completed in him who is the head of the body, the church, the beginning, the firstborn of the dead, that in everything Jesus might be preeminent, that he might be first Even in the Old Testament, we see this being foreshadowed. And yet there is something more yet to be completed. We read in Romans chapter 8, verse 23, that we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, because Jesus is the first fruits of the dead, but we have received some of the first fruits of the kingdom of God. We are experiencing even now the forgiveness of our sins, the, the love of the people, of the body of Christ drawn together to sing and to worship and to pray and to bear with one another. We receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the indwelling presence of God who moves and guides and fills and helps helps and offers hope and speaks when we can't even speak anymore, who guides us. We are receiving the first fruits of the resurrection that is to come, and yet we still groan for more. Don't we groan for more? And all of the brokenness, turn on the news, and all of the brokenness, look at your face in the mirror, some of you, that was not meant to be an innocent this insult, that you are ugly, but that some of us are sick. 
<laughs> our brokenness, our age, right? all of this thing is, is breaking down. Entropy is taking effect. And so we groan for God to bring forth the fullness of the harvest. The fullness of the harvest will come. This is foreshadowing all of this. Secondly, I think it brings us to a more practical understanding as well that this first fruit season, this holiday that the Israelites are celebrating, is a revelation of how we as believers ought to acknowledge God's provision in our life. That we ought to acknowledge God's provision in our life. The question of the text is, of course, right there, bringing the first of everything. Now, these kinds of sacrifices were not unusual in the ancient Near East. There are other people that had other gods, and they would bring lambs, and they would bring grain, and they would bring drinks, and they would bring all of this stuff, and they would put it on their altars. But they believed that the gods would come down from on high, and they would subsist on this food. There's a great story in the Apocrypha um, uh, called Bell and the Dragon. It's an addition to Daniel, and we see this kind of taking place. They believed that this God was going to come down and was going to eat the food off of the altar. But in the book of Leviticus, we get no in indication of this. This is not God coming down because he needs to eat and drink and be filled. God doesn't need anything like that. No, rather, this is a way that the people are going to bring worship to God. They're going to recognize and say, you know what? I know the harvest is going to come. I know that I can take the first that I get and I can give that to God because I know that the rest of the summer and into the fall, God is going to give and give and give and give. You cannot, as sometimes they say, outgive God. That, that you are able to give that first fruit because more is on its way because God is the one who provides. So this has two applications, this idea of God as provider and acknowledging his provision and first is that this is worship this is how the people worship we talked about this um, a few weeks ago when we were talking about worship and, and I, I made the point to say that worship is not singing sometimes we confuse that we like make worship i'm going to worship which means i'm going to a church service or i'm going to sing or there's some song that i get my worship or i'm going to get my worship on or something like that Oof. um the idea of worship is to offer something what it is worth. So Laura went away for the weekend, and I tried to do the dishes. And I got most of them done. Not all of them. But most of them done. Because I wanted her to see what she's worth to me. I know that when she comes home and there's dishes all over the place that she's stressed. And so I want to offer her what she is worth to me, and I do that by doing dishes. Right? Not quite the same as worship, but it's similar. In the way, same way we offer our worship to God, we give God, we show God what he is worth. And so we do that through singing, we do that through uh, hearing teaching, we do that through studying scripture ourselves, we do that in prayer, we do that as we gather together, we do that at the table, we do that when we give our tithes and offerings, we do that in many, many ways. And this wholeness of giving is in itself worship. And so part of what the people are doing here is that they are, they are taking from their work and they're offering the first of their work to God. Remember that this is how God created the world. He lays the foundations of the world and he plants the garden. And it says in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, that the Lord God took man and he put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. That we're created to work. 
that we're created to do, we're created to make, that the same kind of creativity that was in God himself has been implanted in us so that we can create and make things. And we see this happen with Cain and Abel. Cain and Abel, they have the first of their harvest, and it says in Genesis chapter 3, or Genesis chapter 4, that Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and their fat portions, and that he burns them before the Lord. So thus, before we get to to Leviticus 23, we have uh, a principle that sits at the very foundations of creation, that God has made us to work, and that the first of our work, the first benefit of our labor, goes to God. And that is how we acknowledge God as provider. And that's an important question. How do you acknowledge God as provider? How do you do it? The scriptures say you do it by offering the first portion of your work to him. Second, we see that this um, is ministry itself. We acknowledge God as a provider um, because God uses people to take care of people. God made a a green and verdant world. He made it full. And the problem in, in our day, as much as the problem in their day, was not that the world doesn't have enough, but that that so much goes into one hand and not as much goes into the other hand. And so what do we do in that situation? Sometimes it's because of bad circumstances. Sometimes it's because of laziness. Sometimes it's because of poor decisions. Sometimes it's because God is teaching or testing or trying to stretch us in new ways, teaching us to be grateful, teaching us to love, teaching us to share. Whatever the reason is, Jesus is right when he says, you will always have the poor with you. But this presents a problem for Israel because Israel is going to be God's light to the world. It presents a problem for the church. For in the New Testament, Jesus calls us what? The city on the hill, right? A lamp to the nations. Like, we're to stand out. And so the problem that faces them was, okay, well, what do we do with the fact that some have more than others in Israel? Because we cannot look like a light to the world if we have people starving on our streets. We can't look like a church that loves each other if we know somebody here is going without food and shelter, right? That's not any kind of church. That's not any kind of family, um, and so what do we do? So God writes laws that you, 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 you leave the edges of your fields unharvested. You go over your field only one time. You don't charge interest. You don't hold a pledge overnight. Um, you, you make sure that you pay fair wages and you don't cheat your, your people that you employ, that, that these things go on. God establishes these laws, but he also takes it out of the first fruits. In Deuteronomy 26, which is another text that uh, is referencing and expands upon, in fact, this holiday of the first fruits. In Deuteronomy 26, verse 10, it says, And behold, now I bring the first fruit of the ground with which you, O Lord, have given to me. That's what they're to say. And then you shall set it down before the Lord your God in worship. This would be literally to bow down before the Lord your God. And then you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given you, you and your house, you, the Levite, the sojourner who is among you. And then you shall say before the Lord, I have removed the sacred portion of my house, and moreover I have given it to the Levite, to the sojourner, to the fatherless, to the widow, according to all of the commandments that you have commanded me. Now that's a lot. So what does that, what does that mean? It means that God is assisting his people through his people, that ministry is coming out of this first fruit, that this first fruit that is coming into the, into the temple or into the tabernacle is going to go out to the poor, it's going to go out to the sojourner, it's going to take care of the priesthood. It's going to be ministry. So it's worship and it's ministry. Now, it's interesting then, isn't it, 
that in the New Testament, it never says to us, listen, you have to bring the first fruit, your sheaves and your grain and your wine and your lambs, into the church. I remember growing up hearing that you're supposed to give your 10%, that this is the tithe, right? And yet this is an Old Testament principle, not a New Testament principle. The New Testament doesn't then repeat this. And that's an interesting conundrum. Why? Why is that? It's interesting um, to me. And I think that it comes to this. All the while, the past several months, anyway, we've been talking about this, that God no longer works by saying to you, listen, here's a big long list of do's and here's a big long list of don'ts. God has now removed from us this law of stone and he has written onto your hearts, Jesus. And Jesus lived a life of generosity. In fact, generosity is a commandment to Christians. And let me tell you, generosity is way trickier than 10%. Right? Generosity is way harder. Because if God's commandment to you is 10%, we say, okay, fine, write the check, be done with it. But if God says to you, I love you, I have poured out my life to you, now I ask you to worship me, and I ask you to do ministry and do it generously, what's the figure for that? Right? And so then that takes some maturity. It takes some prayer. It takes some soul searching. It takes some honest looking at your life. And it takes the opportunity as well to say, you know, I've given some, but man, I'm just so excited about what God is doing and I want to give more. Which is why I've always felt really weird and I've only been asked to do it one time in my life to preach a sermon on tithing and I hated it. Because to me, it's just silly. Like, do you want electricity in this building? Good, right? Are you getting me really freaked out for a second? (laughs) We want heat, like, you know, if you want ministers who are here that can devote full-time attention to the church, I mean, if you want those things, then you have to give to it to keep it going. Like, that's just, like, common sense. And so to me, to, like, enforce a law is to, like, create new stuff, and we're not supposed to be people that create new laws. We're supposed to be the people that see needs and fill them. We're supposed to be the people that see that, uh, that, you know, Paul is, Eric is struggling and, 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 and meet him and say, Eric, you look like you're struggling. Can we, let me buy you lunch. Let's talk. Like, that's the kind of generosity God is looking for. I see there's a need in the church and somebody needs to fix it and I'm going to fix it or I'm going to give to it or whatever it is. Like, that's what we're called to be. And that's way more beautiful, isn't it? Than people who just say, you know what, 10%, I'm done. That's a beautiful image of a people who love their God who love to worship their God and love to do ministry in his, in amongst his people. And so we're called, I think, principally to give the first, whatever that, whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to make that in your life. Maybe the first of your time you want to offer it to Judy and the children's ministry because they need help. And those kids really, really need help. I have seen Paul's kids. They need help. (laughs) Ian will tackle a bear. And so, like, we need people to tackle him first. And that's, that's worship. That's ministry. Don't you ever think that serving in the nursery is just like a chore or something. That's something you do because you love God. And you love those kids. And you love the family of God. And you want to worship God. And you want to serve the church. And you do it out of thanksgiving and joy. Because that's what it is. Every time you put a check 
or cash or whatever it is in the offering. You are doing that because you love God, because you want to worship him with the first of your work, because you want a ministry to be done, because you want people to be taken care of, because you want needs to be met, because you love God, not because you're fulfilling some sort of law. The law now is love. We should have that written upon our hearts and upon our minds. And what I love about the passage we have here in Leviticus 23 is that Leviticus 23 is just a foreshadowing of that law. Leviticus 23 is like, here, this is what I'm telling you as children you need to do, but now I'm looking at a whole congregation of grown-ups, of people who have been blessed by God, who have been filled with his spirit, and now are being called to do so much more and organically because you're grown-ups. You don't need laws anymore because it's on your heart to serve, to worship, to do ministry. I love what's written in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 2 through 3, where Paul is speaking. He says, of these Christians, he says, in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed. So their joy and their poverty have done what? They've overflowed in a wealth of generosity for they gave according to their means, and as I testify, beyond their means. And that's the heart of Oakland Drive Christian Church, as I've seen you pour out your lives for one another. And I love that. I love the, the trick that uh, Jesus plays on the Pharisees. They're trying to trick him, but he's the master trickster. And he switches the tables on them. They say, should we pay taxes to Caesar? Because it's not in the Bible, right? And Jesus says, well, you know, whose face is on it? Caesar's. So give to Caesar's what is Caesar's and to God what is God's. But that begs the question, doesn't it? Because what isn't God's? So if you're here today and you're a Christian, everything's God's. You've just laid down your life and you've said, God, take me, use me, fill me, use me to your service. I love that. Isaiah speaks to his people um, in Isaiah 23, the Lord speaks to his people through Isaiah. In Isaiah 23, 29, verse 13, he says, This people draw near to me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. Their fear of me is a commandment taught by men, which means that their respect, their adoration, their fear, their love, their worship of God, it is a law to them, and they just practice it like law. It doesn't come from an honest place. It's not that their hearts are drawn to God. And so they can sit in church and they can sing their songs and they can read their scriptures and they can go home and they could be even very good and righteous and upright people doing no wrong whatsoever. But where is their heart? Where is their passion? Where is their worship? Because God wants that. He wants that. And so we as a church this morning have, we've sung some songs and we've said some prayers, we've read some scripture, but where's your heart? Because that's what matters. Where's your will? Where's your desire? Where's your hunger this morning? And I think um, that's kind of where we're getting at. We are to be a people who, is, who are full of thanksgiving to God. That, that the heart of the believer is the heart of joy. That we aren't miserable curmudgeons. We don't yell at people and tell them to get off our lawn, right? We don't do those sorts of things. Like, we are the people who are full of joy because God has given to us more and more and more and more. How can you not be excited about that? How can you not be full of thanksgiving? We, we partook of the table, and the message that Paul gave to us this morning is that God stood in front of the bear for you, and you were the guy that pushed God in. 
Something like that. God gave everything up for us. We come to the table and say our sins are forgiven. We come into the room and say these are your brothers and sisters in Christ. God has given so much. We should be overflowing with gratitude. The Deuteronomy text in chapter 26 verse 11, which I read a little bit of earlier, it says that when they bring the first fruits, it says you shall rejoice in all the Lord, all the good the Lord your God has given to you and to your house. And to the Levite, which would have been the priest or the minister, and to the sojourner, that's somebody who's just, that's a stranger, it's just a person passing through. Like, and to the fatherless, that is the orphan, those who have no other family. Like, you should be rejoicing, and that's what this is about. So again, another theme that we've been pushing on the past few weeks, or, or the past two weeks, is that these are not texts of misery and fasting and God isn't, you know, all terror and, you know, but God is a God who's calling his people together four times in the spring and three times in the fall and saying, celebrate my goodness. Celebrate all that I've given to you and to your house. Celebrate. And the New Testament echoes this. It says in Ephesians 5, 4, let no filthiness, no foolish talk, no uh, coarse joking, which are out of place, but instead, let your language be one of thanksgiving. uh, Philippians 4, 6 says, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, make your request to God. You have prayers and you have supplications, but bring them to God with thanksgiving. Why? Because when we come to God, we aren't coming like begging and groveling at the foot of the Creator, but we are coming to our Father who has given His own Son and implanted in you the Spirit. You're coming to Him because, again, what we see in the first verse, the foreshadowing that God's promises are good. And if he says that I will fulfill those promises, then he will. So we come to God in prayers and supplications, not assuming they won't happen or hoping they will happen, but assured that God will answer. And whether his answer is yes or whether his answer is no, that answer is within his will and it is for our best. And so we come to God, not in the spirit of of misery, oh, I've got to pray now, but thanksgiving because we know our prayers will be answered. Colossians uh, 4.2 Continue steadfastly in prayer. Be watchful with thanksgiving. That is, be looking for the ways that God is going to move in the life of the church, move in the life of, uh, uh, in your own life. Be ready to give thanks to God for it. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 1. First of all, then I urge you that supplications and prayers and intercessions and thanksgivings be made for all people. And I like that. Because that includes all of the people you don't like. Thanksgivings, even for all of those people that you don't like. Because they are God's ministry too, right? And so what do we draw from this text? Where do, where do we come with this text? The, the thing that puzzles me most about um, Leviticus chapter 23 is, is this. It's that when they come with their, their sheaf, they're to wave it. Like, wave it around, because, you know, maybe God isn't looking or something. Like, I'm over here, here it is. Like, what's the point of the waving? I thought about that. And I I think the point of the waving is this, is that 
when, and, and think, this is not an individual, this isn't like, like a, a one-on-one encounter with the priest. No, all the people are like bustling and pressing in. I mean, the, the whole crowd is there. They're pushing into the tabernacle. And, and this one guy steps up, and this is my first fruit while everybody else is looking on. And if you just, as that person, just set it down on the altar, what do people see? A dude and the priest and the altar, that's it. But if you pick up that sheaf and you wave it, what does everybody see? They see your first fruit. Here's what God has done for me. And you set it down. And then the next guy stands up and he waves it. And everyone sees this is the first fruit God has done for me. And everyone sees. So it stands for me as I think about closing out this text. This is kind of a final thought. It's not just a foreshadowing of all that God is going to complete in Jesus and all that God is going to complete in the resurrection that we so long for, but also how God is right now completing things in your life. That right now there is first fruits that are happening where God is is growing something inside of you. And the message that I think I want to leave you with this morning as I think of all that God has told these people to do is when was the last time you waved it in front of somebody? Maybe not in their face like a chick track or something, but, but like honestly, this is what God's done for me. And I couldn't be more thankful about it. Because God has done things in my life and I couldn't be more thankful about it. It will be December in two years here that Laura and I have been a part of this church and I couldn't be more thankful about it. You know, God has done so much for all of us. And he calls us to give him back some of that, but he's calling us also to share that good news and thanksgiving because it is also missional. Our saying here is to share Jesus. And the best way you can share Jesus is not by smacking someone with a Bible or telling them they're going to go to hell or saying to them, repent, but saying, hey, listen, let me tell you about what God has done in my life because it's amazing. And I'm desperate that you would have a taste of that too. So let's be the sheaf wavers this week. Showing everyone and telling everyone what God is doing for you this morning. As we come to a conclusion, we offer a, a moment of invitation. If, if you need a prayer, we'll have an elder down front um, to pray with you. If you need to come forward and maybe meet Jesus for the first time, be washed in the waters of baptism, come forward for that too. If, if you just need to pray, need a moment to think offer you to give everything you are to God. Please stand as we sing this song.